That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Gretchen Rubin, and my dilemma is that from my earliest childhood, I have been a hair twister. I I have a nervous habit, I twist my hair, and I finally decided that I want to stop twisting my hair, but I love twisting my hair, and it's hard to stop. Okay, so knowing that it's causing hair loss should make you want to stop because of vanity alone. And I am learning this. As women age, their hair thins naturally, so you do not want to expedite that process by twirling your hair. You'll have to be like Brian Urlacher and go for some boxy bald dude who looks like he could beat up a truck to a suburban neighbor guy who comes over to borrow your weed whacker. So no, if for no other reason, stop yourself before you're at a restore or Rogaine level loss. But as we've learned previously on this podcast, knowing isn't, in fact, half the battle. So you clearly haven't stopped, despite understanding how it might affect the lusciousness of your locks. So that means we need another approach here. Let's get practical. Maybe we'll use one of your tools. Since you're an upholder, a trait we'll get into later in this pod, you not only care about being accountable to others, but to yourself as well, which means you'll stick to this even if no one is watching or keeping you honest. Pairing is another tool you use. So assign another task that you have to do instead every time you're tempted to twirl your hair. Say meditate or say the alphabet in your head backwards or wear a thread bracelet on your wrist and twist that instead. Better yet, every time you're tempted to twirl your hair, Google Restore and stare at Brian or Lacker's before and after photos until you're scared straight. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is Gretchen Rubin, the best-selling author of books on habits, happiness, and human nature, including New York Times bestsellers, Better Than Before, Happier at Home, The Happiness Project, Four Tendencies, and Outer Order, Inner Calm. Rubin's books have sold more than two and a half million in print and online copies worldwide in over 30 languages. She also has a weekly podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and a daily blog, GretchenRubin.com. I was inspired to have her on after I read Better Than Before recently. It gives kind of practical tips for changing habits, whether that's waking up earlier or quitting smoking or changing careers. My ESPN colleague, JJ, actually recommended it to me after I posted on Instagram asking people for their best healthy habits, the sort of tricks that they've used and found helpful when trying to stick to an eating or workout regimen or getting better sleep. I've been trying to change my when I go to sleep, when I wake up, my ability to do my physical therapy exercises, all this stuff. And so I was trying to see if other people had tricks that had worked for them. I've gathered up the best of those tips and also some great advice from Gretchen's book, and I'm going to be posting them soon. So updates on that soon. And I'm also hoping to try to find a way to create a group that allows for some accountability for everybody, whatever the habit they're trying to change is. So keep uh, coming back to this pod for that, and I'll have an update on that soon. But in the meantime, I think you're going to love our conversation. We talked about uh, why rewards actually aren't good for habit changing, something called a lightning bolt habit change, how it's hard, if not impossible, to manufacture. But if it happens to you, it can be the best way to make a habit change. Uh, the four tendencies, how your personality affects your ability to change your behavior, and some of her longstanding takeaways from the Happiness Project book that made her famous. So I really love this conversation. Hope you guys do, too. That's what she said. 
those of you who are regular listeners are hopefully going to love this conversation because it ties into so many things that I've been talking about lately on the podcast, happiness and habits and gratitude and how we actually change the course of our lives instead of feeling uh, stuck in whatever we're currently feeling, doing and uh, and feeling about our lives. So Gretchen Rubin joins us and she is the author of a number of books that can help you with all those things. And I, I read uh, The Happiness Project years ago, but just recently read her book Better Than Before on a tip from someone and I'm getting tons from it. So now's the perfect time while it's fresh in my mind. I want to talk about all of them though. And I want to start way back at the beginning, Gretchen. You grew up in Kansas City. Um, Your father was a lawyer. Did your mother work as well? Uh, No, she was like a very active volunteer, but but she didn't get paid work until I had moved out. Growing up with, uh, growing up with your parents, what did you think you wanted to do when you grew up? You know, I never thought about it in a way that now to me seems strange, but I'm one of these people who really doesn't think about the future that much. Um, I, I, I sort of didn't have a vision of what I would do as an adult um, to what now seems kind of strange degree, but I didn't. What did you enjoy doing? I enjoyed reading, so I read all the time, and I would say that I really identified as someone who was a huge reader. But I didn't think of myself as a writer because – at that time, people didn't spend much time thinking about sort of creative nonfiction, which is what I would say I, I do now. So I thought, well, you're either like a novelist, a playwright, or a poet, or you're a journalist, or you're an academic writer. And I didn't want to do any of those things, so I didn't really foresee a future for myself in writing. I didn't think about it that much, um, but it took me a really long time to realize that that was um, you know, a possibility for me. I know from reading your books that you're not really into sports or competition or um, games uh, or competing in general, which could not. There's a sentence in your book where I was like, oh, no, this lady and I might not get along because you were like, I don't really like dogs or sports or competing or food. And I was like, oh, God, it's all my favorite things. Um, But but when you have a dog. So now I I am a fan of dogs now. Oh, good. Oh, we brought you to the to the dark side. Excellent. Um, No, love my dog. So when you were growing up, were you sort of the nerdy, liked to be alone and read and sort of quiet, or were you uh, were you still social? I was social. I think I, I'm sort of a Hermione Granger type. Um, you know, I, I I liked being part of everything. I was a part of a lot of activities and stuff like that. And it's funny, when I say I don't like competition, I'm very ambitious. So in that way, like, I really have that striving quality to me, but I don't, I think it's that I don't like games. Um, and so a lot of times when you think of competition, you think of people competing against each other in sort of a game, even if it's something like who can have the highest sales. I don't right. like that structure, but I'm very ambitious. Interesting. Okay. Maybe the act of being ambitious as opposed to the result of whatever that turns into the the actual or just the idea that it's sort of like there's a field of people against whom you're trying to i like competing against myself or against sort of my fantasy of what i could achieve but i'm not that it doesn't i'm not that focused on what what other people are doing and i don't even like watching something like the olympics because i don't like seeing people lose (laughs) you know people are very focused on who's winning i'm like but what about all the people who tried so hard and they lost it's so sad yeah that empathy gets in the way in those situations for sure. I have that as well. Um, so you end up right. Well, empathy is very useful. I wish more people had it, but it does cause pain at times for empaths yeah. who are yeah. Um, so you end up going to Yale, and and what at the time? I know you got your undergraduate and your law degree from there. At what point did you decide? Okay, I guess I'm going to go into law. 
You know, I went into law for all the wrong reasons. Like, I was, you know, a senior, and I thought, well, I'm good at research and writing. A law degree will keep my options open. I can always change my mind later. My father was a lawyer. He was very, very happy as a lawyer, so I had a good model. And I just thought, oh, you know, I'll just, like, what else am I going to do? I'll take the LSAT. I'll see how I did. Oh, wow, I did well on the LSAT. Why didn't I apply? See where I got in. Oh, I got into Yale. <laughs> oh, yeah, why not go to Yale Law School? That'll be fun. It'll be a great education. Um, so I kind of did it for all the wrong reasons. I'm really glad I went. I had an amazing experience. It was, it was an invaluable uh, experience, and I, and, I, and I don't regret it at all. But it's also true that I went uh, – I did not go mindfully, um, and my, my process was not uh, particularly admirable. I would say that's the case for many people who are young and it just feels like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then they figure out later, maybe not so much. Did you feel pressured to do so? Were there expectations within your family for this high achievement or to follow in the path of your father? Or was it simply just, well, I don't really know what else I want and this is something I'm good at? Definitely the latter. There was never, I've never had any pressure from my parents um, to do anything in particular. Um, not at all. Um, but I think it was very much the way you described it. Sort of like, I don't really know what to do with myself. And it, was, it just was something, I'm very good at like, oh, if you tell me what to do, I'll do it. Like, mm-hmm. if this is what you're supposed to do, okay, if I'm supposed to study for the LSAT, I can study for the LSAT. I'm, I'm not nearly as good at making my own path or figuring things out in a kind of like in a big, big ambivalent, ambiguous haze. Right. And so I think I latched onto law school as something that just felt very legitimate and like something that, oh, this will always come in hand. This is a great education. Um, it's a great education to be a lawyer. You know, right. that's what it's for, and that's what it's really good at. And so the idea that it's just sort of this general... Uh, finishing school for intellectual people, no, it's really, it teaches you how to be a lawyer. It's a great education, but um, I, 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 whenever people now tell me that they're, go- that they're thinking of going to law school, I always say, go if you want to be a lawyer. If you don't want to be a lawyer, really stop and think. There's a lot of things you can do with three years of your life. Right, um, right. You know? Yeah, there's a lot of... Uh of uh of former lawyers in the sports world actually uh people who brought that over from and use all the skills but uh not so much yeah. what they learned because they, they they didn't actually end up wanting to be lawyers i'm curious yeah. when you discovered um writing um and we'll get to to some of the work you did before and and the biographies you wrote when you eventually discovered being able to write about happiness and human nature and habits and this um nonfiction stuff that you're doing is that when you feel like that ambition took over? Because you don't sound like you were driven by it much at a younger age, but now you consider it a big part of your identity. Well, no, I was ambitious the whole way. I mean, I went to Yale. I went to Yale Law School. I was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal. I clerked on the Supreme Court. Um, I was pretty ambitious. I wasn't that focused, but whatever I was doing, I was very ambitious within whatever it was that I was doing. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so you mentioned clerking uh, for the yeah. uh, U.S. Court of Appeals and then the Supreme Court for Sandra Day O'Connor, and then you were a chief advisor to the Federal Communications Commission chairman. Uh, all of that stuff was still a part of you sort of following up on your education and believing that yeah. this was the path you'd set for yourself? Well, actually, I got the idea that I wanted to, that I that I wanted to write a book when I was clerking for Justice O'Connor, um, but I needed to like I, I had to sort of figure out how to do that, and and so I did end up going to the Federal Communications Commission because I sort of wasn't ready yet to commit full time to being a writer. Um, I mean, I literally went to the Borders Bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal <laughs> and started following the directions. But it was hard because you know you have to write a sample chapter, you have to write 
periodic table of contents. You have to write a pitch letter. I didn't have an agent. I had to figure out how do you get an agent? Like there was so much involved that I did spend, I, I, I kind of had a transition law job where I was sort of like feeling like I didn't want my next job to be in law. I wanted to switch to being a writer, but I wasn't ready yet to do it full time. Yeah. R.I.P. Borders, by the way. I remember Borders I know, back in the day. I know. <laughs> R.I.P. most bookstores, unfortunately, because yes. they're wonderful places. But yeah. um, So you started right with the biographies. Those were the first two books? Well, my first book was a book called Power, Money, Fame, Sex, A User's Guide. And it was like <laughs> a satirical self-help guide for Power, Money, Fame, and Sex. And that was like such an incredibly fun book to write. So that was my first book. And then, and then, yes, then I wrote kind of a short unconventional biography of Churchill and then one of JFK and then a weird little art book about why, uh, called Profane Waste, about why owners destroy their own possessions, which is a hmm. subject that had preoccupied me since law school. Um, and then I wrote The Happiness Project, and that got me sort of down this path of writing about, I've always written about human nature, that's really my subject, but now I'm very much more in the kind of happiness, good habits, uh, personality um, kind of uh, area. So I'm looking at this power, money, fame, sex. And what's funny about it is you're still using the same sort of uh, format that you use later very genuinely, but you're mocking it in this one. So is there? do you feel like writing that book and sort of skewering it actually led you to wanting to write a, a true version where you're seeking the real things that we all want, not the sort of stereotypical power, money, fame, sex? Well, I think you're right. I think it was a great preparation because it really, I was thinking very much about those aspects of human nature and what did or didn't bring you happiness. And, and, and it really got me focused on like why you're, my big question is who are we and why do we do what we do and how can we change if we want to change? And, yeah. and so Power, Money, Fame, Sex is looking at those questions, but in this kind of dark, satirical way. Um, so yeah, I think it really, it set me up later. And then the thing about Churchill and Kennedy is they're interesting to study in terms of human nature because they're such exaggerated figures. They're so huge. They're so studied. They were involved in so many kind of dramatic situations that you can see personality and character working through like in a magnified way that you don't get sort of with the ordinary person. Um, so, yeah, I think Power, Money, Fame, Sex was a great was sort of a great education um, for thinking about, um, you know, why do people do what they do? Um, uh, it, it's just endlessly fascinating to me to think about. Yeah. So you, you, you write the biographies and, and you write uh, Power, Money, Fame, Sex. And how do you end up deciding, whether it's through life or study or realizing what you're interested in, uh, that you're going to do the happiness project and become someone who wants to write about human nature in a more genuine way? Um, you know, it started out just for me. Um, I was finishing up my JFK biography, and I had some sort of intellectual downtime, and I was stuck in a city bus in the pouring rain, and I thought, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, I want to be happy. Um, but I realized I didn't spend any time thinking about whether I was happy or if I could be happier. And I thought, I should have a happiness project. And it hit me like that, happiness project. I ran out to the library the next day, got a huge stack of books, and started researching happiness. What is happiness? Can you make yourself happier? Could I make myself happier? And at first it was just something I was researching for my own interest, you know, my own kind of edification. But it was such a fascinating and limitless subject that before long I started thinking, wow, well, maybe, maybe this should be my next book. And um, I called it The Happiness Project because really when I had the fir that first idea, 
that's what I called it in my own mind. And then from then, and it is such a vast and limitless subject that I've basically stayed in that area ever since. And that was 10 years ago. And if I remember correctly, you considered yourself pretty happy when you wrote it, yes? Yeah, you know, most people in the world say they're either pretty happy or very happy, and I was pretty happy. Um, so I wasn't starting from a place of despair, um, but uh, but I definitely also had the feeling that there was probably some low-hanging fruit, um, that if I thought about it, I could probably come up with some things that would make me happier. And indeed, I did. I found a lot of things that, you know, without a lot of time, energy, or money, um, really did um, boost my happiness, and it, it just seems like... Why wouldn't you do the things that you could do to boost right. your happiness? I say that a lot on this podcast, and I was talking to uh, Yale professor Lori Santos about this because one of the biggest frustrations for her in teaching a class on happiness and psychology and the good life is you can tell people what to do and why to do it, and they can know that it will make their lives happier and more satisfying, and they still won't do it. So what are the tricks our brain sort of plays on us in order to keep us from doing the things that will make us happier? And I think once you've embraced a lot of them and they work, you're like wanting to tell everyone, right? And I feel like that's what this book was, was you being like, wait, everybody, I figured a bunch of stuff out. Come and hear it and then do it. Um, but it also means a lot of people do come to you and, and you started uh, being regularly on your website and, and doing sort of uh, exercises with people and soliciting people's thoughts and feedback for future books. Has that been... Um, a blessing, but also sort of a curse in terms of feeling that you need to be responsive and interactive with all those people? You know, for me, it's really wonderful um, because, first of all, it's like the biggest research, you know, cohort you could ever imagine. So I'm right. just constantly hearing from people um, about what their challenges are, what works for them. If I throw out an idea, I see what people respond to. Sometimes I can predict what will resonate, and sometimes I, I, I'm surprised. And so that's really exciting for me. So I feel like it really feeds my imagination, and, and it's sort of my sense of my subject. Um, it can get overwhelming when you just feel like there's a lot, to, just like everybody. It's like a lot of email. There's a lot to, to kind of ma- manage. I don't have any negative experiences with, like, people being – you know, inappropriate or or ugly in any kind of way. So I haven't had to deal with sort of any any dark side. Um, and usually, it's I would say it's it's only to the better better because whenever I'm writing about things, I feel like I have such a, a deeper sense of human nature because I've heard from so many people who have experiences that are different from mine. For instance, one thing. So I'm an abstainer, which means when I'm facing a strong temptation, it's easier for me to have none. Like, I can have no cookies, but I can't have one cookie. But then there are moderators, and moderators do better when they have a little bit, or they have it sometimes. You know, they have, like, I'll have a bar of fine chocolate in my desk drawer, and every day or two I'll have one square, and I just want a little bit. And I thought, I I was like, I thought I was the only abstainer in the world. Well, because everybody's always saying, be moderate, follow the (laughs) 80-20 rule, you should be able to manage yourself. And then when I put this out there, I'm like, you know what? I can't. It's too hard for me. It's much easier for me to just give it up altogether. I quit sugar. You wouldn't believe the stuff that I quit because it's just easier for me not to have it at all. Well, once I put that out into the world, I realized a huge number of people, maybe half of people are abstainers like me. Um, but sort of culture was saying, oh, be moderate. It's like, well, it doesn't work for me. I'd rather yeah. give up something altogether than to try to have a little bit. It's too hard for me to have a little bit. Um, and so part of it is just by being able to put ideas out there, then I get all this response, which then also helps me understand people better. Yeah, I think one of the favorite things that I liked about your book, Better Than Before, which is really about how do you cultivate and change habits? 
is yeah. the idea that you understand and express that everybody's different. So yeah. you can get all sorts of suggestions from people and they can work great for one person and not for someone else. And one of those were what you said, are you an abstainer? Are you a moderator? And then the, I believe what's, what turned into your next book, Four Tendencies, yeah. was this uh, understanding that everybody falls into one of the four. And that's part of better than before. I love this aspect of it because I think it really does help decide the changes that you would want to make to establish a habit. So can you talk about the four tendencies? Yes. Oh, I would love to. My, one of my favorite subjects. So, <laughs> yes. So the four tendencies is a framework that I came up with that, as you say, divides people into four categories, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Um, and I will now explain it briefly. And the fact is, most people know what they are right away. It's not hard. It's, this is not a subtle test. But if you want to take a quiz that will give you an answer, you can go to quiz.gretchenrubin.com or just search quiz Gretchen Rubin. Like, more than 2 million people have taken this quick. It's free. It's really quick. Um, but like I say, a lot of times people don't even need to go take the test because they know what they are. So what it's looking at is how a person um, – uh, response to expectations. And we all face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations, which are like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then there are inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to get back into playing tennis. And depending on how you respond to outer and inner, that's what determines whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. So upholders uh, readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. So what they're doing is they're making everything an inner expectation. If it meets the inner standard, They'll do it. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. Like a friend of mine who said, well, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team, and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she had no trouble, but when she was trying to go on her own, it was a challenge. And the thing about obligers is the only way they can meet inner expectations is by creating some form of outer accountability. If you want to read more, join a book group. That's how it works for obligers. Um, so their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. Then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time, they can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they are very likely to resist. And typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they won't sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday because they're like, I don't know what I want to do on Saturday. And just the idea that someone expects <laughs> me to show up annoys me. And their motto is, you can't make me and neither can I. <laughs> so in a nutshell, those are the four tendencies. Well, and that one I feel bad for in the book because very often you're left saying, this doesn't really work for rebels because it's really hard yeah. to create yeah. something if the very basic nature of them is to not want to follow any sort of system. So here's the thing. You said this is very easy. I found this very hard. According to your quiz, I was a questioner, but well, I considered to say the fact that you're like, this is very hard. I, was, <laughs> I would have guessed that you're a questioner because questioners are like, 
You can't put all of human nature into four categories. I'm a little bit of everything. And that is exactly what I do. It makes sense at the time. They don't understand. That's what it is to be a questioner. Just by saying that, I'm like, she's probably a questioner. Right, because I thought I was an upholder. But here's my problem, and this is my question for you. Throughout the book, I found that certain things I could say, yes, this absolutely makes sense. I'm an upholder when it comes to morality and principle. I expect Mm. other people to act a certain way, and when they want me to act a a certain way, it's very important to me that they feel like I'm living up to their expectation. I show up when I want to. I try not to be late. I don't bail. Same with me, though. If there's something that's just, if you put me in a room and no one would know what I did, I would still want to act a certain way. But then there are certain outliers where I'm like, why can't I be an upholder for that? You know, certain things, whether that's doing my physical therapy exercises that I don't really like, even though I know I'm supposed to, or eating healthier when I go out to a restaurant and I tell myself, no matter what you see on the menu and you like, just get the healthy thing. And I can't do it, even if no one else is there. And I'm not, you know, relying on anyone. So what do you tell people? Do you have to pick and choose for certain things what your tendency is? Or do you have to assume that you're that all the time? Well, I do think that it's, I believe in the genetic roots of personality. So I do think this is part of who you are. I don't think you're one at 20 and one at 40. I don't think you're one at work and one at home. I don't think you're one with your physical therapist and one, you know, with the, with morality. Um, I, I think it is, I think we could probably probe a little bit about your experiences and understand how you could harness the questioner tendency to get you, yourself to do a better job. For instance, with your physical therapy, I would say, are you 100% convinced that this is necessary and that the way that you're being trained is the most efficient? And do you have absolute faith in the judgment and expertise of your PT person? I actually genuinely do. So you actually genuinely think that you need to do this? Yes. And you think that this person is training you in the most efficient and best way? Yes. This is like my seventh doctor, and I really trust this one. I just don't prioritize it compared to other things that are more necessary in that moment. Would you say to you that you're trying to optimize your efficiency? Probably. I would say I just put work above everything, and then everything else kind of becomes, uh uh-oh, I didn't get to that. Okay. So I would say as a questioner, what you should really do is sit down and do the analysis of whether that is the most efficient and best use of your time over the Mm -hmm. long run. Because are you going to have pain? Are you going to have limited function? Are yes. you going to have, yes. um, is it going <laughs> to affect your, uh, your, your abilities? Like, is it going to make your, your performance lower? And really think through the consequences of your action. Because you, if you are a questioner, usually once questioners are really convinced that this is what they want and this is the best way to get what they want, usually their actions follow. So I just wonder if in the end you just are not totally convinced that you have to do this or commit to this in this way or that it really matters. Mm, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to look into that. You're like, eh, you know, sure I should go. I, cause you said I should go. I should go is somebody is saying that I should go. That's not like I know I need to go. I know that I want to have the benefits of physical therapy. And so, of the, you know, and better than before that book, I identified the 21 strategies people can use to make or break their habits. And as you say, some work much better for some people than they do for others. So you have to pick and choose what works for each individual. For questioners, the strategy of clarity is the most important one. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this in this way? What is the purpose of this? Mm-hmm. You just don't sound that convinced. Right. I got to work on that because I, yeah, I'm, I'm like, I quit soda. I quit fast food. Like I quit all the things that 
in my brain, I could say, here's why. This is not real food. This is terrible. This is chemicals. Why am I doing this? But I can't do that with other. Yeah, I got to work on that. Okay, but this is not well, a personal so therapy session. Time. Maybe you need to think about the value of your time. What I is think the value I do. of your time? Yeah. Um, what's the highest and best use of your time? Because you might say, well, if I do this now, then I'll reap all the benefits in the future. If I don't do this now, I'm just going to be getting myself into more and more right. visits to the doctor interventions, like really it's most efficient for me to deal with this now, which is the thing about a lot of physical therapy. You can do a little bit now or you can do a lot later. It's sort of yeah. like, you know, you can, you can, you know, it, or you might never, my husband blew off his physical therapy and his knee is totally crooked and it's caused lots of problems for years because he blew it off in college. It's like, yeah, don't make that mistake. We'll be right back with more That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Sometimes hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at their web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. So one of the other things you talk about is that certain people are able to sort of say, and and you don't really give people an option on this one. You're like, don't say I'm going to start on New Year's or the first day of this month or as soon as this happens. Today is the best day to start anything. How do you explain that to someone who does, for whatever reason, prefer to work in this sort of framework of this is a better day to do this? Well, I will say that there are auspicious days and people like almost never like start a diet in midweek or something. So if there <laughs> is a day that feels very auspicious to you, um, okay. But what happens is that a lot of times when people are like, there's this loophole called the tomorrow loophole, which is it doesn't matter what I do right now because starting tomorrow, I'm going to be so great. And like, if you look at people just to take dieting, cause this has been so researched, people who think that they're going to start a diet late in a few days or in a week or whatever, they do much, they eat terribly right now. Right. So it's like, well, then you're just, that's not good. So the reason why starting now is good is once you're ready, begin now. Don't wait. Don't, don't have a fantasy that everything's going to be easier tomorrow um, or that, like, you know, you're going to be, or like people are like, well, I, you know, I'm going to totally bust my budget in December, but then in January, I'm going to be great. Well, you're the same person in January. You're going to have exactly the same temptations. But I wouldn't, but if there is some date, there is something where people feel like this is the right day to start. But, but I just would be mindful of that. It can become a loophole that people use to excuse bad behavior or, you know, self-indulgent behavior. Um, but now, as a, you know, what's that old adage? Um, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The <laughs> yeah, second best exactly. time is today. Yeah. Um, same thing with well, a good habit. The best time to start exercising is 20 years ago. Right. Second best is yeah. today. Best time to start like PT start was in Monday, college. It's going to be that. <laughs> it's going to be far more auspicious. Okay. You know. Right. You mentioned loopholes. That was another fascinating section for me because I recognized myself in in and and so many people in the ways that yeah. we say 
if I do this, then I get this reward. And you did some interesting research on how people actually were much more successful at habit changing and goals when they did it without the reward being some finish line or, or you know, act that was specific. Yeah, rewards are very, very tricky um, in habit formation, and it, which is funny because a lot of people think that's kind of a go-to thing, which is, oh, reward yourself for this good habit, and that's going to be helpful. But in fact, there's just research showing that when you reward behavior, um, you, you create all kinds of distortions because a lot of times people... They, they'll, they'll do it for the reward for a while, but then even if they keep getting the reward, they'll stop doing the behavior. Um, or they just, or they feel they don't, they don't, they don't want to do it. Like they did this really interesting research with little kids. Little kids love to color. If you reward little kids for coloring, they will only color if you reward them and the quality of their coloring goes down. Because what you're teaching them is no one would color unless there's a reward. Um, and so you're sort of teaching yourself. If, you, if you're like, okay, you know, if I do yoga five times out of a week, then I get to have a scone. What you're teaching yourself is like the only reason somebody would do yoga is to do a scone. And then pretty soon the day is going to come when you're like, you know what, it's not worth the scone. Right. Or even worse, you're going to say, you know what, I was feeling kind of sick a couple of days. I think I should get my scone anyway, even though I only went to yoga for two times a week. This is what starts to happen um, frequently. And so what's a better kind of reward is the reward where it takes you deeper into the habit. So the reward for coloring is more crayons. The reward for doing yoga is, hey, you need a new yoga mat because you've been doing so much yoga. Or you need new yoga tights because with all the yoga you've been doing, um, wouldn't it be nice to have like some nice gym clothes or whatever. It's a reward that takes you deeper into the habit. It's not irrelevant to the habit. It's only useful insofar as it supports the habit. Um, and then, of course, there's the reward of doing whatever it is. Yoga makes me feel great. I love the relaxed feeling I have after yoga. How, I, I will go to yoga because it's so important to me to have that great feeling that I get from yoga. Yeah. And so, hard, so so much of this reflects back in what I mentioned in my conversation with Lori Santos is once we convince ourselves that something isn't going to have the result we expect, then we kind of talk ourselves out of doing things, even when we know they make us happy or or they make us feel better or healthier. Um, one of the things you also talk about is this lightning bolt. And I think yes. so many of us wish that we could manufacture a lightning bolt. Yes. So kind of explain that theory. And have you discovered any ways to mildly manufacture that? I know I don't. I don't. <laughs> Sadly, so, so as I said, I, in, the, in Better Before, I lay out all the strategies that people use to make or break habits. And a strategy that's often overlooked because it's kind of, it's very different from the other 20 and as you say, you kind of can't invoke it. It's something that happens to you. So in a way, it's just sort of luck if you, if you, if you experience um, the lightning bolt. Lightning bolt is when you get some piece of information or some, some, something changes in your life. You're hit with some big realization, and suddenly everything changes. So the most, the most obvious example is like um, somebody I know was a doctor, and he said, I will talk to people who are like, there's no way I could give up drugs. I've been doing drugs for years. And they get pregnant, and bang, they give up drugs overnight because they're like, I can't, I can't be pregnant and be doing drugs. And he says, it's just amazing. But, like, you would have thought it wasn't possible, and overnight they do it. You, I've, I have a friend where, he, like, his son was born, and he quit smoking because he's like, now I'm a father. I can't smoke anymore. And it was sort of, like, effortless. Um, it just happened. And for me, I experienced the lightning bolt because I read this book by Gary Tobbs called Why We Get Fat. 
because um, I was interested in insulin, um, not even why we get fat. I was really interested in insulin. Um, and it just completely convinced me that I should give up sugar, give up carbs. And overnight, I changed everything about the way I ate. I mean, just no substitutions, no gradual modifications, mm. just overnight. And and I gave up huge amounts of stuff, flour, sugar, pasta, starchy vegetables, fruit. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And but it was because this book all of a sudden it was just overnight because I my idea changed. And so the lightning bolt, I think it's important to understand the lightning bolt because I think sometimes when people experience it, they don't recognize it and they don't take advantage of it. And sometimes they kind of, they don't even, it doesn't even really feel legitimate to them. Like I have a friend who um, uh, quit sugar when she was pregnant and then, and she loved it and she was really happy about it. But then her baby was born and then she sort of slipped back into eating sugar without really meaning to. Um, I think if she had mindfully understood what had happened, she might have been like, oh, I want to commit to this and keep this going. I had a really easy time getting into it, but now I want to sustain it. Instead, right. it, she, she sort of didn't know, have a framework for understanding it, so she didn't stick with it. And then, and then she didn't have that same lightning bolt. So she, the first time it was really easy. But right. that's another thing about habits. Starting over is often much harder than starting. People often find it pretty easy to do something the first time. So they think, well, this will always be easy. It's like, no, the second time it's much harder. Yeah, I want to um, get so in, the lightning bolt. Yeah. I do. I mean, people say to me, "Oh, I read that book too, but I didn't get the lightning bolt." Or, you know, <laughs> um, people want to have because it's so easy. It's right. the easiest way to change habits. Uh, well, and it's, it's cumulative. Like, it feels like a lightning bolt, but you know, if, when I wanted to quit soda, I'd already thought about it for a long time, and then I saw a video of someone using Coke to clean the rust off a car, and I was like, "Yeah, I think I'm done now." <laughs> like, yeah. that's not yeah, something I want to put in my body. People will point to documentaries. Yeah, or it can even be, um, you know, it can be like, um, uh, you know, something a doctor says. Um, sometimes people like it's like when they hear the words like you are officially pre-diabetic, they're right. like, oh, my gosh, now everything like you've been telling me for years I should do this, I should do that. But somehow now that I'm officially in that zone, everything feels different. Um, maybe somebody else in your family has some kind of health crisis and you, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is real. Um, different thing. Even sometimes it's something like a milestone birthday. Um can kind of shake people up, but it is, it's just, it, it's frustrating because you think, oh, I'd love to just like have this thing hit me on the head. Because <laughs> like you said, then you just give up Coke overnight. It doesn't even feel hard. It's just like, oh yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, done. Um, yeah, it's pretty, it's not that, it's not that uncommon, actually. It's much more common than I think people realize, but it's still not something that you can invoke. Right. Let's talk, we might have skipped uh, the most important part, which is sort of an understanding of habits themselves, fixed mm. habits, unfixed habits, why they're hard to change in the first place, and why in the end it should be something you don't have to think that hard about. So kind of get to the basics of what, when you were writing this book, what you were first tackling as far as the idea of a habit. Yeah, well, habits are super important because they are like they shape about forty percent of everyday life, and so they're the invisible architecture of our ordinary day. And and we all know this that if we have habits that work for us, we're a lot more likely to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And if our habits don't work for us, that's going to be a lot harder. Um, and I got interested in habits because what we people often talk about self control or willpower. Self control and willpower are hard; they're draining. Um, but if you have a habit, you don't have to use self-control or willpower. You just have these, these things on automatic. You don't have to get up and debate with yourself whether to go to the gym. 
You just get up and go. Just the way you brush your teeth. You do not say to yourself things like, oh, gosh, maybe I'll brush my teeth in the afternoon because I'll, I'll have more energy then. Or I've been so good about brushing my teeth, I think I deserve a day off. Or I'm going to start brushing my teeth on Monday, I don't, so I don't have to brush my teeth today. Or given the kind of boss that I have, how could anybody expect me to brush my teeth? You just brush your teeth. You know, it just happens. <laughs> so the more that we can make things habits, the more we get ourselves out of this kind of self-control and willpower um, energy drain, decision fatigue, should I, shouldn't I, now, later, one, two, three, uh, you know, it just, it just, it, it, it makes it hard to do what we want to do because it's draining. Um, and so habits can put good behaviors on autopilot um, and then that just frees us up to use our self-control and our willpower for other things um, like not losing our temper with our children or handling a difficult boss with composure. Um, These are things that require a lot of self-control and a lot of willpower. But if we're not exhausting it on things like, am I going to go for a walk around my neighborhood before I go to work because I just get up and do that, well, then I'm going to have more energy for other kinds of kind of one-off drains on myself. Yeah. It's kind of amazing how easy habits are when they are things you don't think about. And I try to put things right next to my toothbrush, like, oh, I want to take these probiotics and I still don't do it. And it's sitting right next to it because my brain has to think to take them instead of do the thing that I'm so used to, which is pick this up, put the toothpaste on and be done with it. Um, Okay. So here's my suggestion. Okay. Say that you can't brush your teeth until you've taken the probiotics. Mm, Like put the toothbrush behind the bottle Right. You can't that's the strategy of pairing, but you put the thing that you you want to do second. You know? Very smart. Yeah. Or put it in like put it in your morning like have a mug next to your coffee pot and put the bottle inside the mug and oh. then you're like I can't pour coffee in this mug until I've taken my vitamins or my my medication or whatever it is. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah, and I've I've been thinking of having like little a little box and everything in there is morning and I have to do everything in the box before I can leave the bathroom and everything That's in the box a great at idea. Night is That's a night a great box. Idea. Because, because you're right. What happens with things is they just become wallpaper and you don't even see them yes. medicine, so they're not they don't act as visual cues. So you have to make some kind of behavior cue. But yeah, there's there's a lot. But that's a great example because there's a lot of ways to tackle that. Once you say, look, it's not that I need to have more willpower. I need to put myself first. I need to learn to like be more motivated. I have to have more self-care. That's what my problem is. That's why I'm not taking these probiotics. It's like, no, I just need to set this up in a different way. I'll try yeah. this. I'll try that. Maybe I need a little experimentation. What works? I'll buy time caps. I'll buy, you know, there's, there's, but once you say, okay, what do I, how do I set this up slightly differently to see if I get a better result? Quit, we could generate 10 ideas in, in a second right. of things to try. And, and you just try, try them one, and you see. try another, and then you get to something that works. But I think a lot of times people blame themselves. What's wrong with me? Everybody else can do it. What's my problem? I need to change. No, you don't, whatever you're dealing with, other people are dealing with too. Change your circumstances. Set things up in a different way. Right. It's more about what works for you than it is that yes. everyone's doing it right. It's more what works for you. Yes. It's kind of the clarity of action thing, right? Well, and I think people really beat themselves up. I mean, people say to me, I can't use a to-do list. I'm not a real grown-up. Why is it that everybody else can use a to-do list? I'm like, no, that's a rebel thing. Rebels don't like to-do lists. They've got all <laughs> kinds of workarounds because they don't like to use to-do lists. You know, and it's like um, they also don't like schedules. It's like, yeah, yeah, you're not going to want to sign up for a weekly exercise training thing. Don't do that. That's not going to work for you. Because there's nothing wrong with you. That's just you got to find a different solution. 
um, obligers, they have to have outer accountability. And obligers will say to me, well, I don't want to have outer accountability. I want to be able to just do it on my own. And I'm like, that's not going to work for you. I'm just here to say it's not going to work for you. It's <laughs> never worked in the past. That's why you're super frustrated. <laughs> Set up outer accountability, and this problem will be solved tomorrow. Why, would, why not take the easy, quick solution? Right. Um, outer accountability. He, the, biggest, the biggest tendency is obliger. So you're in big, good company. Many, many hugely successful people are obligers. Don't, there's nothing wrong with you. Just set it up in a different way. Get yourself the outer accountability, and you'll be able to achieve any aim that you want. And it's very easy to give yourself outer accountability once you realize that's what you need. Right. And I would imagine there are people who are questioners who also are great when they give themselves obliger things. Like, I I don't like to bail on people. I care a lot what people think about whether I'm doing the things that I say that I will. And I'm, you know. That's values. Those are values. Yeah. That's values. And so that makes me someone who works well when I'm accountable as well, when I have other people watching and seeing if I succeed at the things or do the things I say I'm going to do, um, which I think is one also thing that's hard for people. You have to really want to change in order to say, I'm going to a, a colleague of mine who actually came on the podcast and said, you know, I've beaten cancer twice and I don't take care of my body. I want to be healthier as somebody who's already been lucky enough to do that twice. And he started putting every meal and every workout on his Instagram. Just to say, yeah. listen, everyone's going to watch me do this, yeah. and if I fall and fail, it's you all saw me not do the thing I said I wanted to do, and he's lost like 130 pounds. I bet he's an obliger, That's because that's an obliger problem and an obliger solution. Yeah. Whenever anybody talks about self-care, they're probably an obliger. Whenever anybody talks about spontaneity, they're probably a rebel. Whenever anybody talks about arbitrariness, they're probably a questioner. Huh. But people talking about self-care and people talking about I need to give outer accountability in order to be, meet my aims for myself, that's probably an obliger. So I would bet 85% that your coworker is an obliger. Yeah. So I, I love all this stuff. I find it so fascinating. I really recommend to people to read better than before if they want to kind of figure out their tendency and the best ways for them to tackle their various habits. Um, and then, of course, if you still haven't read The Happiness Project, there's so many interesting stuff in there. Um, I remember the, the Happiness Project. There were certain things I was like, I already do that. I'm on top of that. And then it made me like immediately go to the container store. It was such a weird, the part that was about organizing for me yeah. was like, this is the first action I'm taking as a result of this book is like getting my life better in order. Um, what were the biggest takeaways for you and maybe the ones you heard the most about from other people from that book? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that one because I just wrote a little book called Outer Order, Inner Calm because to a very surprising degree, many people are like, oh, my gosh, when I get my stuff in order, I feel so much better. Yes. It, it, you know, a friend of mine said, um, I finally cleaned up my fridge and now I know I can switch careers. And I'm like, <laughs> I know how that feels. You know, so I think there is this weird kind of disproportionate connection for a lot of us between having things orderly in our environment and feeling kind of that sense of focus and control and potential. And that was definitely surprising to me because I felt that way myself, but I didn't realize that that was something that many people experienced. Um, yeah. Another thing that was really um, I count it surprising to me, like I really surprised myself and, and, and I've heard from many people for whom this is true, is that I love mastery, I love familiarity, um, but what I realize is that doing things that are novel and challenging actually bring happiness. And um, like I started my podcast, Happier, um, with my sister, and I remember calling her and saying, this could be a huge flop, it's going to be a lot of work, are you sure you're up for this? She's like, 100%. 
<laughs> and it, it was. It was. We felt insecure. We were drained. It was so much work. And yet it's this huge engine of happiness for me, um, for both of us. And um, so I was surprised to see that the research that says novelty and challenge make people happier, even for someone like me who did not think that would be true. Well, yeah, it's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and the, the other thing that I think is absolutely true, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree, um, and I think people, everything that I've heard is just emphasize the truth of it, is that in the end, it's relationships that are the most important to happiness, that you have to feel like you belong, you have to feel connected, you have to feel like you can get support and give support, um, you have to have intimate, deep bonds, and so many people are like, I move all the time, or I've lost touch with my friends, or I'm so busy I don't have time, or I'm in a new place, or, you know, there's, there's a lot of challenges, um, but anytime there are new kind of manageable solutions or suggestions, um, people are so excited about that, because I think people really do get that, that how important relationships are. Um, and so that's something where that was sort of my belief and that's what the research showed. And certainly as I've engaged with people, um, in the last 10 years, I've just seen that over and over that that is really at the core. And it's interesting too. You said earlier, you're someone who doesn't think about the future much. And that is interesting too, in, in talking about how so much of studies about happiness talk about mindfulness and being present yep. And yeah. if you worry and are anxious too much about what could happen in the future, particularly, again, back to Lori Santos, our expectations of what might happen tend to be deeply flawed. We only yeah. think of the best stuff that could happen if we win the lottery, not the bad stuff. We only think of the worst stuff that could happen if we're in an accident or something become ill and not the good stuff that comes from that. Um, and so our expectations are so skewed that we're much better being present and being, you know, right now. And I wonder if your happiness in part stems from just naturally being that kind of person. Well, you know, it's interesting because uh, I was talking about the genetic roots of personality, and I think uh, like 50% of happiness is genetically determined, and then right. 10 to 20% is life circumstances like education, wealth, health, marital status, things like that. And then the rest is very much influenced by our conscious thoughts and actions. And so, you know, I took a test. There's like an online test you can take, and I'm like a seven, so I'm like pretty happy. And I think I'm still a seven, like when I'm lying in bed at night or like sitting on the subway. Um, but what I have found is that by doing all these things, I've really made the experience of my life much happier. Uh, so I think part of it is who I was, just like the, my natural feelings about the future or sense of optimism or sense of you know, self-mastery, self-efficacy, those kinds of things. Um, and then part of it is just, you know, really by like really grappling with the idea like i'm gonna feel better if i get more sleep that is really right. true and i need to go to sleep then or you know it's like not enough just to you you said this earlier it's not enough just to know it intellectually i have to act on it in order to get the benefit um so really like doing those things um i think really did did do that did, did help yeah. Yeah. And there's interesting, there was like a mild loophole that you said, you you know, somebody wrote you, I think, and said, I know I want to go to sleep, but also my husband and I, our time to really be together yes. and share time is once you put the kids to bed and we feel like that's the only time we have in our day. So if we want to stay up an hour late because we connect and talk and have a snack, even if it's not ideal, that ends up feeling better than making the smart, quote unquote, choice of going to bed early. Well, it's one of those, I mean, that's what happens a lot of times with habits, and I think that's why sometimes a habit won't 
doesn't stick is that you really have two values that are both important that are competing. One is I want to get more sleep. Two is I want to hang out with my husband and have a couple's time. They're both important values. And so I think the way, the, what for, and I think different people would make different choices, uh, and you might make different choices at different times in your life, but the thing is to say, well, how do I think about this, rather than just defaulting into it. And it's also like, okay, it's one thing if we're staying up and engaging with each other, but maybe he's out of town and I'm just watching off, you know, reruns of The Office um, right. rather than going to sleep. You know what I mean? It's sort of like really being aware. You talked about mindfulness. Really being aware of what we're doing. Are our habits working for us? Do they need to change? Um, what are the values that we're serving? Um, then we can make better choices. Before I let you go, I want to ask, what can people expect from the new book? Because I know it's sort of about all these things you've been writing about. How do you connect your habits with happiness and everything? How is it different than the previous books? Well, this book is really going to be very focused on the body um, and the experience of the body and how I'm very excited about sort of just the, the physicality and the concreteness of physical experience. And, uh, and yet I'm one of these people who's super distracted and absent-minded and I feel like I notice nothing. And so really this, you know, they say research is me-search. And so this is really me trying to learn what, can, what are sort of the disciplines that I can embrace that are going to help connect me to sort of the beauty of the world and an awareness of what's going on around me. One thing already I've started to do is I'm much more aware of smell. And, um, and you kind of have to wake yourself up um, to consciously noticing just the casual smells. Like I was in a restaurant the other night and a door opened and this very strong scent of kind of disinfectant came out. Mm-hmm. And I thought, not in a bad way, not in an unpleasant way, but it was just a change in the smells in the restaurant. And I said something to my friend and she's like, oh, I didn't even notice that. And I was like, okay, see, I really just want to be aware. Like you're outside. Like what, what is it? What does the street smell like? Okay. Now I'm in Central Park. What does Central Park smell like? Okay. Now I'm back on the street. What is that? Um, food trucks smell like um because usually i was just tuning it all out letting it fade into the background and now i'm trying to bring everything into the foreground but it takes a lot of mental effort um so that's what i'm that's what i'm learning how to master and you think it makes you happier or just more present to be aware of all of the things that maybe you usually blow by yeah i think it makes me feel more alive right and more and it makes experience feel more vivid now, it's interesting. Does that make me happier? I think it makes me happier in some sort of deep way. It makes right. me feel more like I'm living my life. Satisfied. Um, yeah. I feel like part of me always, no matter what I'm doing, is sort of like lying on a couch rereading Little Women. You know, part <laughs> of my brain is just always sort of doing that. I'm like, no, come on. Come on. We're all going out the door right now. Stay with me. Um and, um, yeah, so I'm, it's so interesting. The body is so interesting. The senses are so interesting. Um, it's just an abs, it's just a joy to work on this book. Yeah. Well, I'm going to have to read that one now too. I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to celebrate your entire catalog. Just like Excellent. there you go. That's just office good. space. Um, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish inquisition. <laughs> Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Uh, the White Album. Okay, nice. Number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Reading. Oh, yeah. That's a good one for you for sure. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? 
Ability to overcome my 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 fear of driving. Really? Yeah, I can drive and I do drive, but I'm afraid of driving. You're such a New Yorker. You live in New York, right? I do, but I grew up in Kansas City. I've still I've never met anyone that doesn't live in New York that doesn't that's afraid of driving. I feel like it's my just... sister lives in L.A. I oh no! Oh yeah. no! That's a terrible place for that. Yeah, she drives, <laughs> but she hates driving. Yeah. Uh, number four. Have you ever been in a fist fight? No. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oh, my gosh. These are hard. <laughs> um, uh, gosh, my sister. I would love to know what my sister's life is like. Or my daughter. My daughter's a junior in college. I'd be sort of very curious. Not in a, not in a, not in a prying into her life way, but just like what is it like to be a, senior in col- a junior in college these days? Yeah. yeah. For sure. Well, you can ask uh, Lori Santos if you talk to her, because that's all she's focused on. Um, Number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, I was a waitress in a Mexican restaurant, and it became clear that I did not know, like, what Mexican foods were called what. Like, and I still don't know to this day I have a block (laughs) against it. Like, what is an enchilada look like? I don't really know. Um, And that became clear. And I faked it surprisingly effectively for like the first six weeks that I was there. And then it all fell apart in a very embarrassing way. (laughs) Uh, Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? My ability to delegate. Oh God, me too. Is that a habit we can change? Everyone tells me to get an assistant and I'm like, I'm stressed just thinking about having to tell someone how to do things the way I want it done. I know. I know. I know. That is a question and a, and a polder thing. They have particular problems with delegation. Yeah. So you haven't, maybe that's your next book? <laughs> maybe. I mean, research is me search. I need that book, yes. Right. Every year I have a one-word theme of the year, and one, one, one year the whole theme of the year was delegate. How'd that um, go? I still feel like I don't. I'm not that good at it. <laughs> All right. I need that book, too, so get to, get to work on it. Okay, I'll get to work on that. <laughs> Number well, eight, if you could play. Uh, you just did it right there. I just delegated. Right. Yes. Well yes. Well Do that work for me, please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Get enough sleep. Oh, that's an interesting one. People are smarter and kinder and more patient when they sleep. That's for sure. Yes. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Oh, my daughter um, uh, was born early. Uh, well, actually, the most, like, like fear, like moment of fear, my daughter walked into an inner intersection. Oh. I, I had started walking because I was going to get a cab, and she just saw me start walking and so she just kept walking across the street and I saw her like and I had the whole thing where I was like paralyzed and time stopped and everything and I almost threw up um, later from the adrenaline and nothing oh. happened she came right back but um, that like uh, that was like the most intense moment of fear was seeing her yeah. walk into Park Avenue um, not, okay. just not even knowing uh, that she was not supposed to Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, my gosh. Uh, 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 um, helpful, engaging, funny. 
don't know, those, I feel like I could do better, but I'll start with those. Those are good for sure. I like those. And finally, the bonus question from a listener, if you could be really great at one thing for one day, like the very best at it, what would it be? Oh, probably tennis. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. And uh, who would you recommend I have on this podcast? Who's someone that would I would find interesting and great and wonderful? Mm. Chris Gillibeau. He has a podcast called Side Hustle School. It's a daily podcast, and he also he writes a lot about side hustles, and it's like how we can get freedom and opportunity and, like, Maybe maybe we love our day job, but we have kind of an unexplored interest, or we don't love our day job, and we're looking for a, a way out, or we just want more money because it means more freedom and more security. Um, but he he sort of writes about the future of work and the changing nature of work, but in a very cool. happiness way. He wrote a book called The Happiness of Pursuit about kind of quests. Um, he's just a really interesting guy. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, and this was very interesting. Thanks so much for making time to join me. Uh, I feel like even more so than before, I'm now just going to be uh, a Rubenite. Is that what we call them? Uh, Excellent, yes. I've already been Rubenesque for most of my life, so I might as well add on being a Rubenite. Uh, Excellent. So thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, it's so fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me. That's what she said. Laughter Permitted with Julie Foudy, one of my favorite podcasts, is coming back for season two. The new season debuts next Wednesday, October 23rd, but there's bonus content up now. World Champs Week, as she's talking with Alex Morgan, Kelly O'Hara, Carly Lloyd. Interesting stuff with Carly Lloyd, talking about how this World Cup, despite being another winning venture for this U.S. women's national team was one of the lowest points of her career as she fought her way into getting playing time. Really good listen. Check it out and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, people who comment on your vacation pictures, hey, you're on vacation, get off your phone. Do people think vacations are like nonstop, action-packed adventures with literally zero downtime? The way I plan them, okay, fine, sort of, maybe they can be. I've gotten sort of good at logging about 25,000 steps, checking off a three-day itinerary in one jam-packed afternoon and dragging my husband behind me uh, near death. Uh, but even then, there are stops at cafes to recharge or moments where you're lying in the sun or right before bed. There's plenty of time to check your email or post some photos or just check back in with the world that you've left behind, maybe to find out that somehow Kershaw blew it again and the Dodgers are out. Or to find out that Baker Mayfield has more picks than any quarterback for the Browns in years and years and years and years. Things that are important that you need to know even if you're on vacation. So how about you shut it with your hope you didn't spend your whole trip on Instagram. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this. Just let me do me, all right? I like taking cool photos. I like sharing them. I mean, yes, there were way more people commenting that they were thankful that I was sharing cool spots in London and Greece and that they got inspired to take trips of their own. You know, to those two people who made me feel guilty, lay off me, okay? All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. You do you, I do me, and me involves taking a thousand photographs in nine days' time and sharing about 800 of them. I overshare. It's my nature. You're lucky I don't do this podcast drunk. Imagine the oversharing then. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate Review, give me all the stars, and leave your dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll get to it on the podcast. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 